morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Inside the Writer Studio is also proud to be an affiliate of Libro FM, the audiobook platform that supports your local independent bookstore. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information on Libro FM and a special offer. Uh, my guest today is Annie Hartnett, whose novel Unlikely Animals has just been published. Annie, welcome to Inside the Writer Studio. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so oh, happy this to is, be here. This is such a cool novel. There's so much to talk about here. Um, but it was inspired, at least in part, by your discovery of what seems to me a fairly bizarre institution in New Hampshire. Tell us about, about Corbin Park, how you found out about it, a little about its history, and how it kind of led to beginning this novel. Yeah, so I was writing a book that was about um, fifth graders and a substitute teacher. And it was something I had started when I was in the middle of writing my first book, Rabbit Cake. I had a professor who said, you know, put that aside for a couple of weeks so that you have something on the back burner so that you don't just work on one thing for the rest of your life. Um, and so I did that before I graduated. And then I did put that, you know, on the back burner for several years while I worked on Rabbit Cake and finished Rabbit Cake. And then, um, so then I, uh, Rabbit Cake was published and I, started working on that book about fifth graders um but it didn't have much magic to me i was just kind of like is the second book just you know not as fun as writing the first is it it is it just is this all i get <laughs> um <laughs> so i was up in so that's like the place i'm in as i'm working and then i'm up in new hampshire visiting some friends who had just bought a house in newport new hampshire which is sort of near near Sunapee. And the town is a small town and I'm driving on this road, uh, trees on either side of the road. There's like a small pond and a covered bridge. There's not even many houses in the area, in this particular area. And I look up and there's like, it looks like it fell from the sky onto this mountain or, or not mountain hill. Um, and it's this enormous yellow mansion and it looks like the nicest hotel you've ever been to. And I just feel like, I, well, I, what is that? I want to go there. Is that a spa? Um, <laughs> and it has no trespassing signs on all the trees at the bottom of the driveway. Um, probably because for people like me who think it's a spa. <laughs> um, and so I'm like, that's private property. And my friends didn't know what it was. So I Googled enormous yellow mansion, Newport, New Hampshire, <laughs> and found out about this robber baron who had made all his millions and his, he had like was in several different industries and then moved back to the, to where the, at his retirement, moved back to the town he was born in, Newport, New Hampshire, knocked down the house he was born in, except for, and this is supposedly the, the room he was birthed in, the room he was born in, he kept intact. And then he built this mansion around it. Yeah. And so that was cool. So that's the first thing I find. And then I keep reading and find that he, as his retirement project with all his millions, he built a he bought up 60 farms and fenced in 26,000 acres um uh and shipped in animals from all over the world and so that's 
I'm really interested now, but I don't write historical fiction. I didn't like, I, I don't as of now think that I would ever try to write historical fiction because of sort of my sense of humor and the things that I uh, wouldn't know how to edit out of myself. Um, my sense of humor and my sort of interest in the internet. Um, and I like my characters to have cell phones. And so I'm writing this book set in 2014, but I'm becoming obsessed with this history of this place. So I start going to the historical society in the town um, just to kind of follow my obsession. And as I'm sitting in the attic of the Newport Historical Society, I find this guy, Ernest Harold Baines, who is a naturalist, um, who was a naturalist in the park from 1904 to 1925. And he was a real life Dr. Doolittle with animals living in his house. He had foxes, he had a bear, he had two timber wolves, he had coyotes, he had, um, he had lots of little birds that were like in and out of the house. Um, songbirds were kind of his, his one of his main um, things he worked to protect. Um, and I love animals and love writing about animals. And I'm just like, well, I have to write about this guy. This is like, this is a blessing and, and I can't ignore this. So I didn't, I, I started writing about him very quickly as a ghost. Cause I wasn't, I was just gonna write that book that was set in 2014. And, it, and from the beginning that it was a woman who came home to teach in her town um, and she was coming home to take care of her dying father. So I already had like kind of the place to put the ghost where that he has developed a friendship um, with one of the main characters who's who's the who's the man who's suffering from a brain disease. So there's there's a lot of that real history and I'm able to because all Ernest Harold Bain's work is in the public domain and his photos are in the public domain only recently as of like two years ago. So I'm able to put it throughout the book yes, yeah. in a way that adds to the texture of a book that is really set in 2014. So th this is the second book I've read recently that begins in a way which I love for a book to begin, which is with a map. Um, tell us a little bit about, so there's this, there's, for readers who don't have the book yet, there's this absolutely charming map of your fictional town in New Hampshire, um, sort of this hand-drawn work of art. How, first of all, how, did you create it? Did somebody else create it? And how did you go about sort of visualizing the physicality of your, your fictional town? Yeah, so I am a I, I drew it. Um, I am a super visual person. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to be an artist when I was a kid. That's what I my sort of dream was. But I had a high school art teacher who sort of pulled me aside one day and said, um, and she also had me in art an art history class. And so she said, I know you, Annie, I know you love art and I know you want to be an art major in college, but I have to tell you you're a much better writer than you are an artist. <laughs> And so I was like, um, and I actually, I, since I, I have a very dark sense of humor, so I love when people tell me things that are sort of offensive and weird, I'm just like, put that away. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it didn't really hurt my feelings so much as I was like, high school teacher shouldn't tell kids that, but, um, but it did, I kind of it changed the direction of my life. And then, so fast forward, so I'm writing Unlikely Animals in at McDowell, and um, that's a, a, the place where all these different people, artists of different disciplines are. And I was there at the same time as New York, uh, this Amy Kurzweil, who's a New Yorker cartoonist. And I said to her one night, you know, if you, that you're my childhood dream, like you're the coolest person <laughs> to me. Um, so if I could 
watch you work some time if it wouldn't be a bother that would be just like i want to see just a little bit of and you know it's if it's too if you don't want me to i won't but she she was very generous with me and so she brought all her tools um we would socialize after dinner we wouldn't we'd work during the day and then socialize after dinner so she brought all her art stuff to um to to dinner and then after dinner a bunch of us sat around um amy and a couple of our other friends and the uh oscar nominated actress jane alexander too um so it was just this cool group of people all yeah. learning to draw together from amy kurzweil and um and so that that kind of sparked something in me that was like oh this is something that i really like to do it's fun it scratches like another creative itch for me and i and I can also finish something in a really short time, <laughs> whether or not it's like really good, you know, it's not the years that it works, spends working on a novel. So I kept drawing and then my agent, um, I had not thought about putting a map in the book, but my agent, I guess my editor wanted one and my, um, and my agent told her that I could draw. And so I drew the map um, and yeah, I, I'm, that is one of the coolest things to me about this book being out in the world is just um like my like it feels like a childhood dream of having my art in in a published book it yeah. was my own published yeah. book but um but yeah I, and and also i like that i can put a little bit of my humor in the map yeah, um, yeah. it's i mean so. the, the, you could you could spend a while just sort of looking at that map and sort of even before you read the book and then of course you can flip back to it as as you're reading um the so one of the one of the choices that every author has to make almost at the very beginning of, of working on a book is what point of view am I going to tell this from? Is this a first person narrative? Is this a and you make this very interesting choice for, for <laughs> at least part of the book, um, which is it's told from the point of view of a group of residents, if you will, of the local cemetery. So not only is it being told by um, you know, people who have died who who used to live in this town. Um, but it's also being told in the first person plural, which is a very, um, you know, it's not a, it's not a viewpoint or a, or a type of writing that we run into very often. Um, tell mm -hmm. us about why, why you chose that, that point of view for those sections of the book. So for my first book, I had a very strong first person narrator. Mm -hmm. Um, and she kind of is the whole point you read that book because she's got this wonderful voice and, um, and that was the, the, the reason people love that book is because of that narrator um so i had to separate myself from that narrator um so i knew that i had to write not in first person for a while so i i wrote the first drafts of this book in this omniscient third person mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and i had read a few people had told me mostly my father's friends that i wrote that my first book reminded them a little bit of john irving and i i knew that was flattering but i hadn't read any john irving um and that felt sort of embarrassing, but I um, hadn't. So I, I read Gart first, and then I read Owen Meany, and then I read on and on, like I think I read six or seven of his books. Um, because, and I thought, you know, okay, I can see where they're coming from, that we have a similar sense of humor. Um, but this is like, I would love to write something like this, that is grander, and that also um where every little thing that happens ends up mattering in the end and you kind of think it's all random and then it comes to some big 
um, climactic thing. And, and so that, that I found very satisfying as a reader and I wasn't seen in a lot of contemporary fiction. Um, and cause you, I think you do need a lot of patience, um, as a reader, although hopefully like you're entertained enough in my, my book and then John Irene's books to just kind of go with it. Um, so that was something I set out to do. And he uses in some of his books, this third person omniscient narrator, sometimes he has a first person, but, um, so that's what I tried. And then I had a friend read some of it and he said, well, um, I just have a question that who's this narrator, this omniscient narrator has so much personality. Um, who's talking, (laughs) you know, he's, keeps making jokes or she, she, or they, or whatever keeps making jokes. And, um, it has to be someone who's talking. It doesn't make sense. Um, so I said, don't worry about it. Like, I don't care. (laughs) Um, Until I finished the draft. And then when I got to McDowell, um, in the first couple of days I was there, I was like, okay, probably time to address Lucas's complaint about this book. Um, and when you get to McDowell, they kind of hammer home all the people who have been there before you. So they're like, you know, you don't waste your time here because geniuses walk these walls and you know, why did we pick you? Um, so like they talk about James Baldwin and, and then, um, Thornton Wilder wrote our town there and the cemetery is there that he's, um, that is the sort of our town cemetery. Um, I have always, well, not always, I have felt close to cemeteries because I lived in a cemetery when I was in Alabama. So when I started like the fifth graders book that I was writing in the very beginning, I was living in, in a groundskeeper's house in the cemetery. Um, so it made sense to me in some ways, but I also was scared and resistant to do it. Um, not because of the we narration so so much that didn't scare me that much, but um, I Lincoln and the Bardo had come out fairly recently, and I didn't want people to think I was sort of like a you know George Saunders copycat. So I tried it um, because it did make sense to me because I'm trying to tie this like 2014. There's the opioid crisis going on, and there's this family who's dealing with the the imminent death of their father and then all this stuff that I want to work in about 1904 to 1925 this this naturalist like and who is going to care about that but the dead people in the town who who both you know remember this person and care still care about anyone who's lived before and then deeply deeply the people in in the cemetery deeply love anyone who's living because that's like their that's their entertainment and and sort of their um their children maybe um and so i tried it showed it to some friends and they said like this is all you this is not george saunders um and after that i i just went i i didn't question it anymore and um it really helped me gel the book together in a way that made made sense to me and and i don't think i could have written it any other way um in the way that I wanted to to work in all the things that I ultimately didn't want to let go of. Yeah, and as you say, the narrative voice really does have a have a sense of humor and a and a personality. And I love the the plurality of it and the way you mention you know the different names. And so you have people who were part of this group who who died in the 18th century, and you had people who died you know six weeks ago. And and it's it's just it makes it a really interesting um, um, angle. You mentioned Thornton Wilder. And, you know, when I'm first reading the description of your fictional town, Everton, New Hampshire, um, in the opening pages, the description ends with a town no different from any other place, a place where people live and people die. And I am immediately 
the stage manager in our town. You know, I mean, I, all mm. I can think about is that opening monologue where he describes Grover's Corners, you know, here's the butternut tree and here's the congregational church and everything. Um, how, how did you, what, what specific aspects of small town life did you want to sort of bring to the surface in, in this novel? Um, well, the good and the bad. Um, but what I like most about small town life and writing about small towns is I like characters, everybody knows each other. And I like, I love gossip. I'm a very, I probably shouldn't admit, admit this, but I'm a very <laughs> gossipy person. And I'm a very gossipy writer. And I just love sort of this feeling like and I love claustrophobia for characters. I love, you know, that putting someone in a situation that they feel like they can't leave and that everyone is looking at them and they're sort of like exposed um, and in a place where, um, and I also really wanted to play with somebody who has to learn. And I think a lot of people learn this in their twenties to appreciate where they're from and to appreciate their family yeah. um, after they've gone through this sort of like, I want to get as far away from here as possible. Um, so, and I like small towns because I love like small shops and small town centers, but then I'd like to have like my own space. Like my ideal is that I can be in my backyard and nobody knows I'm there. Um, so I live in a small town now that we don't have a great town center. So there are, there are more ideal towns, small towns than the one I'm in right now. But um, uh, the claustrophobia and the gossipy nature are the things that I, that I, and everybody, everybody knows everybody and they can't go to the supermarket without running into yeah. somebody interesting. There, there are, I mean, we've talked a little bit about, you know, the, the ghosts who are narrators, but there, there are definitely aspects of magical realism in this novel. And I wonder what, what drew you to that? Um, I, I think some people still think of magical realism as kind of, well, that's a Latin American genre, you know, Garcia Marquez and Esquivel, and, but you know, how, why did you want to use that particular uh, form in, in this novel? Yeah, I guess I went on a journey with with that, that um, when I started out as a writer, actually, I did one of the, the um, first stories that really lit me on fire was reading George Saunders' Sea Oak, mm -hmm. um, which is a magical, magical story. Um, and and some Amy Bender and and that is more sort of straight magic and I thought you know if I could write stuff stuff like that that's dark and weird but also says something real about the world or society but but doesn't feel like it has to stick to realism um so I wrote in the beginning more um like I have a zombie story um and I have a mermaid story and then I wrote some more realist stories and I had some teachers in my MFA program that said like, this is where I think your writing shines more. Um, and so I kind of had to figure out who I was as a writer. And one thing I, I kind of figured out was that what I like in the world is, is all these like, can you believe that really happened? Um, or like, do you believe this? Like you could have a conversation with someone that's like, I really do believe that people can heal with their hands and their healing energy. There are people that really believe in, in that. Um, or like for my first book, it was all about sleepwalking and that I just love these stories where people really like go to, go to McDonald's and don't remember that they ordered a Big Mac and fries and, and stories like that. Um, and then to pile them on top of each other so that it makes it feel really magical, even though like, 
each each one by itself isn't that magical. Um, and then I think that magic, there's maybe more the healing hands. You can you can probably you could argue one way or another, like how magic are they? Is it is it just something that the town believes? It's you know the nurse says at the beginning when the baby's born. Um, oh, this baby cured my sciatica, but we don't have any proof of that. There's no, um, so, so much of her healing touch is about what people hope it does, um, and what people want it to do. Um, and so I, and I had that in the book early on, that was one of the first things I had. And then, but having that, that um, slight bit of magic then invites more of it. And it involves also invite allows me to play with a lot of coincidence in my writing. Cause I'm like, okay, if you can believe this, I can get you to believe a lot. Yeah. Um, and there's lots of coincidence that, um, that I think works in this novel that might not work in another novel. Um, so I'm able to be a little sillier and set up these really domino situations where one thing causes a bunch of other stuff that it's it just like that one thing needed to happen in order for everything to sort of go off the rails and there's really two scenes for me that i won't spoil but a scene in the middle and a scene at the end where um where because you've bought into enough of the magic that the coincidence really lets me have some real fun with the whole scene I, you know, so a lot of times I pick up a novel and I'll think, well, this person was influenced by, you know, say George Saunders or Amber Towles or Charles Dickens or whoever. But within the first 20 pages of this, of this novel, I went from like, I had Hugh Lofting, Thornton Wilder, uh, Neil Gaiman, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Who, who do you see as your, your influences as you were working on this novel? I feel like I'm in, I read a lot. I was a bookseller for a long time. And, and I, um, and I had this really meaningful conversation to me um, when I, so I got a master's in English literature before I got an MFA, just because I hadn't, well, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. Um, and so I was like, and I was a philosophy major and I, I thought I wanted to be a writer, but only during my last semester of college, I figured that out. So I felt like I had to, I had some more reading to do. Um, so I was talking to um, his professor and he taught there and I was just talking to him one day and he made a comment about uh, Harry Potter. And I was just kind of you know, like he was talking about Harry Potter as if it was great literature. And, and I said, Oh, I like didn't, I'm just kind of surprised you like Harry Potter. And um, he looked at me and and he said, Well, uh, people who really love books aren't snobby about them. Um, And I just thought that that was like from someone who is that famous and is that known for, you know, criticizing or like, you know, reading books. that really meant a lot to me as I was 22 at the time. So from that point on, I just kind of like, I'll read anything and I'll think about it and take it for what it is. Um, and so I kind of have continued that way that I, that I don't try to stick to any one genre or um, I just kind of read what, what people recommend to me. And um I mean, John, this, I do consider this book a love letter, my love letter to John Irving, because it is so influenced by him, but I think it it's influenced by, by everything I read too. And, and also, um, by a lot of things I watch on TV. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Now, you, another technique you use in this novel, which I really like, I've tried to do this a, a lot of times in my own novels. And I think it's, first of all, for me as a writer, it's really fun to do, but I also enjoy it as a reader, is you use documentary storytelling. You, you create, or in some cases, retrieve uh, documents. In, in this case, you don't, it's not just uh, written documents, you use photographs, um, but we also have sort of magazine and newspaper articles. We have excerpts from from works that are by um, by your one of your characters who, as you said, is a real person. Um, tell us about how, first of all, why that technique, and then also a little bit about how you created these documents because some of them you I think you created from scratch, and others are are more closely connected to actual real documents. So they're all all the his like the historical all all that is 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 um I mean they're they're real and now I mess with them right right um yeah. so they're all they're all real so the first one you see so it's you know the book that's set in 2014 and then the first one you get this article um that's sent as an email um and it's a uh, uh, article from 1904 it's from like the atlantic monthly although i changed it to the new hampshire spectator i think um and it's an article about this dr doolittle character um and that article is um and then and then through the rest there's there's um it's all um excerpts from ernest harold baines the dr doolittle his real books and that is in his voice um so those, what I would do, they're all in public domain. Um, and then a lot of his uh, photographs are also in the yeah. book that are um, that his wife took. And those are also in public domain. So I was able to use those. Um, and what I would do is because he was, so as I'm getting to know this person through his writing, um, I was in a library one day in Newport and talking to the librarian there and um, said, someone else in the room overheard me talking about Ernest Harold Baines and this guy just sort of pipes up and goes, Ernest Harold Baines, he was quite the womanizer. And that is kind of what, that's what I love about small towns is that yeah. someone like pipes up as though we're talking actually about someone who's still living, but every, like, you know, they know even somebody who lived, who died in 1925 is like still kind of part of the town. Um, or at least that's how it is in my imagination. So he said that, and then I, I, I asked a couple um, other historians about it. Um, and one of them told me to keep it positive. That's the joke that I make in the author's note. Um, I mean, he was not, you know, really, he, he is a good, a good natured person. He was just kind of like, oh, I like to keep it positive. And then someone else said, oh yes, he was always down at the Cornish art colony um, where like with the women artists, while well, his wife is home taking care of the bear and the wolves. Um, <laughs> which I just love because I have a young child. Um, so I took his writing. So I bought all his books off eBay. Um, and then I was able to just, you know, have them at my house, which is easier than going up to New Hampshire all the time because I was in Rhode Island. Now I'm in Mass. And um, so I took them, typed up all the best stories that I wanted to use trying to limit myself to some some of to the bear and the fox mostly um although there's also a wolf story in there um type those up and then i just kind of hack at them and like take out 
the onions because I was trying to make them as short as possible because they're just yeah. supposed yeah. to be for texture. And then I wanted to work in like some jokes that he would never have made in his writing about being a bit of a womanizer because it has to have more of a plot than just almost those stories that he's telling there. A lot of them were really, well, they were for anyone, but they could be read by children. They were not like, yeah. and people didn't write about their personal life in that way. So, um, so I definitely take liberties with them, but they're all, all the stories of what happens with the animals in those are, are true. Um, I don't think I really changed anything there. Like, um, and, and some of the best lines are not mine. They're his. What a great resource. So it, we, you know, we talked a little bit about magical realism in this novel, but there's some really stark realism in this novel too. And you, you alluded to this briefly before. Tell us about how you incorporate the, the devastating effects of the opioid crisis on, on small town America into this novel. Yeah, so I'm researching this town, this real town, but also because of the type of writer I am, I, I don't feel like I have to tell the truth because I'm, you know, thinking about what kind of magic thing I'm going to add. And, and so I wasn't so worried about telling the truth, but as I'm spending time in the town, talking to people in the town and then reading a lot of articles about the town um, and sort of like finding out when you, when you search this town in New England newspapers, what shows up? And this is pretty much that it's um, it's been a town that's been hit hard by the opioid crisis, yeah. and um, so I were I I am a writer that kind of puts it in and then thinks about it later, thinks about it hard later. But um, so at first I kind of just had it in there as as um, I had a missing person in the town, and I you know why weren't why wasn't anyone looking for them for the person for the girl the woman. And that was kind of an easy answer. And then it became part of the brother character, his story. And so then it became like it got larger and larger. And just like the brother character kind of snuck up on me as to how important he would be to the story. Um, so at first he was just kind of there for like sibling jabs. And then he became a real person with a real story. Um, and so I it it the whole thing kind of happened accidentally and then i had to really think about it and and do research and watch read books and watch documentaries and i have friends who were able to read it and um and or read those those parts of it especially and give me some some feedback to make sure um and um i think that um i'm so glad i did it um and didn't question it because i think it does add like a lot of the emotional depth to the book is is telling, especially I think Augie's story. Um, so uh, it, but it, but it was not something I set out to do. Something that happened sort of accidentally. So as you as you said, this is a story about a young woman who who comes back to her hometown at at a I think it's fair to say a fairly low point in her life, um, partly to to help care for her dying father. Um, tell us. Tell us a little bit about that, about the family, about uh, specifically about the her parent Emma's parents and and their relationship, um, and, and how that sort of because I feel like that sort of forms the emotional core of the novel. Yeah, I mean, so much with both the question about the opioid crisis and then talking about the family. So much of the book is about second chances. Yeah, um, and about sort of making sure, um, trying to get your family to come together before a keystone member of the family passes away. 
Um, and so Emma, the um, the main she's the main character, comes home. She's been born with this healing touch in her hands, and she's coming home because she her father is suffering from a mysterious brain disease, and and um, they think that he doesn't have that long to live. And so she's been born with this healing touch, and her father is sick, and she knows if whatever healing touch she ever had, it's not enough was never enough to heal her father from dying of a brain disease. So she has to kind of deal with that as like the responsibility of being a healer, but not being able to do anything. And she's been kind of just MIA from her family who has been that the whole family as a whole has been going through some, some bad stuff with with the brother has been in rehab twice. And then um, the, the Clive, the father has um, had an affair um, with his colleague. Um, and so the mother has just been kind of, uh, Ingrid, the mother has just been through a couple really hard years and she's just fed up. And so um, the whole family is broken and the brother resents the sister a lot. And um, and then the father is sorry, but he he's an eccentric guy and he doesn't really know how to properly be sorry. Um, and then at the same time, he's also hallucinating. So um, they're all kind of in a in a tough spot at the beginning, and then so much of the book is about them all getting second chances in different ways. Because what the ghosts in the graveyard want most, the narrators, is they want everyone who is living to have a second chance of some kind, because that's what they would like most. They want a second chance at life to make something, not so much in the way that uh, we want... I mean, maybe some of them do, like, we think, like, ghosts have unfinished business. You know, that's like a classic thing that we think ghost wants but the the ghosts in the graveyard just want a little bit more time where they can be alive so they can enjoy their life like yeah. just even to do simple things like one of them really wants to eat a whole chocolate cake because yeah. she spent her whole life on a diet and one of them just wants to like go for a run and feel his body again um so the ghosts really desperately want everyone to have second chances and to and they want this family um to have second chances in in sort of all this different ways that they say see um healing could happen before clive moves on to the graveyard yeah and clive um yeah you said he has this brain disease but as i'm as i'm reading i'm like i kept kept going back and forth between like is this a gift or is this mental illness or is this some combination of the two or are we commenting on one by comparing it to the other i mean talk, talk a little bit about what you know he has these hallucinations but they're not from his point of view they're mostly sort of positive experiences right yeah so i had a conversation with um i mean he i think has is a guy who has been blessed all his life mm -hmm. he has had a lot of things handed to him and he has had a wife who has taken care of him for a long time and he has been allowed to be this sort of eccentric guy so he's been this this poetry professor his tenured poetry professor and he's also in a black sabbath cover band yeah. and you know he's sort of like the rock star in the town everyone thinks he's cool and he's um he has a big personality and a lot of friends um and at the beginning of the novel he is um he is has has been forced into retirement and has lost some of the things that sort of made him who he is so he is struggling with what's my identity what's my worth now if i'm losing all the things that made me kind of a cool guy um and but the hallucinations definitely turn out to be um not as horrible as they might be in a, in 
a more realistic story. Yeah. Um, but he, but I was, so the, the, it is a mysterious brain disease. It is not, um, I did not feel like I had to stick to a real yeah. dementia situation, but, um, a lot of the things that I use do really happen to people. And I, I did, um, sort of at, one of the people actually in Newport, um, who's the president of the historical society works with, um, patients who have, um, some brain like ailments. And she said, well, Lewy body patients often see animals. Yeah. And I hadn't heard of that. And I hadn't really heard of Lewy body disease until Robin Williams died. Yeah. Um, and so I kind of, you know, went down that rabbit hole. Um, and that was one way that I was like, sort of this gift from the universe is like, okay, how do I tie in Ernest Harold Baines, the Dr. Doolittle? Okay, he's a ghost. Okay, and he's had anim real animals in his house. And now I've got this and the main one of the main characters is suffering from brain disease, and he's got hallucinated animals in his house. And so it was just all those things that I, I didn't realize like how much was being gifted to me as I'm poking around during research until I was like, Oh, you know, the light bulb goes off. Oh, that's how they're connected. Yeah. Um, so that, but I also wanted to write a story and this isn't um, about playing who, who's the hero. And the one thing that matters, the ghosts, um, the ghosts really want what they care most about is that everyone gets more time alive, but especially children. Yeah. Um, there are they have like a sort of spectrum of like, as we do of unacceptable to acceptable deaths and and when a 91 year old dies, they do not get that upset about it. Um, just as we do in real life. And then they have the children in the town must be protected at all costs. And those are that's where they really um, get upset. So it's um, uh, so I wanted to write a story that is a little bit inspired by Owen Meany, um, Yeah, that has something at the end where um, everything works out okay for, um, for the char characters you care about the most. Yeah. So as you said, Emma's father was a was a poetry professor, and he makes this great comment um, about poetry, which I wondered if you could sort of just unpack for us a little bit or maybe relate to your own writing. He says, a poet loves anything that better illuminates the daily horror of being alive. Can, can you just talk about that for a minute? Um, yeah, I think that that's um, both um my sense of humor and then i had a poetry professor who i feel like ha had this sense of humor and he there's there's one line in there that i oh no there's two lines in there that i stole from this poetry professor david huddle um he's a poet and he he says at the end of every restaurant meal he's always says let's get out of this hell hole um and actually that's not i gave that line to ralph kelsey but i love that line um it can be very embarrassing if you're out to dinner and someone says, let's get out of this hell hole. <laughs> um, and then there's one other line that I gave him that I used that I forget. Um, but I think that what he's really saying is that life is beautiful yeah. and um, that poetry and writing sort of makes you appreciate how beautiful life is, but in this sort of darkly comic way of saying like, because it's so horrible, it's beautiful. Um, and and uh, that's, I guess, what I love so much about writing um, is that it makes me pay attention to the world um, in a closer way. And even when it's horrible, at least I'm paying attention. I think that the 
ghost narrators do a really good job of that sort of creating that counterpoint that, like you said, you know, making you appreciate these very simple things in life, eating a piece of cake, going for a run, just experiencing the physicality of your own body, because since they don't have that, um, I, I just found that really, a, a really interesting. You would think, you know, like dead people narrating sounds like kind of a downer, but really it's not, mm -hmm. it's very, it's very much the opposite to me that it, that it, um, you know, they, they explain how you should appreciate these, these little things in life. And, and one of them says something else about, about writing or about telling a story at least, which I, which I would love to you for you to apply to your own writing. And they say that a good story doesn't always follow an arrow. Sometimes it meanders a little bit instead. Do you think that applies to your writing? Yeah, I'm definitely winking at the reader there, but I'm like, I know there's a lot of stuff that's going on and they're like, why did I like, why did I get this story about this woman and the bears? But so I'm kind of like, okay, just hang in there. This will pay <laughs> off for you. Um, if you, you know, can just kind of sit back and enjoy the ride. Um, just trust me a little. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that's a line where I'm really like being pretty self-aware. <laughs> well, we like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer each of them in just a few words, but hopefully they'll give our listeners a little something to think about. Uh, so if you're ready, we will begin. Um, what word do you love to work into your writing? I love words that have big meanings, like big so, so something even just um, I like on that first page, I just like there's rejoices and yeah. I just like that that's a strong word. So yeah. something like that. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? I, I would say nothing bothers bothers me. That yeah. single words would never would never stop me. Okay. Where's your favorite place to write? In bed. Where could you never write? I tried in the cards and I ended up with sciatica. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? I pay zero attention to grammar at all. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> what was the first book you remember reading? Island of the Blue Dolphins. I read when I was um, in third grade and my brother was assigned it in sixth grade and I felt like the smartest, best reader in the world. What are you reading now? Um, I just started um, Emily St. John Mandel's new book, The Sea of Tranquility, which I'm She's really enjoying. She's here in Winston-Salem in, uh, in a couple of weeks. I'm looking forward to it. Oh, cool. We had her on the show uh, last year, and but it was via Zoom. So now I finally get to you know say hi face-to-face. -face. Um, oh, cool. Uh, what book would you like to have written? Oh, Dragons Love Tacos, which is a oh, children's book. I love that book. It's so good. One. I have a young friend who likes to read that book. That's um, so good. What sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will? Historical fiction. It was, uh, you, you know, I got a taste of doing some of it this time. And um, but I don't think it's where my talents are, but so much fun to do that kind of research. Yeah. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? That they really loved it. <laughs> that it made them laugh. I always want to yeah. know that it made them laugh. Yeah. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and my guest today has been Annie Hartnett, author of, the, author of the new novel, Unlikely Animals, which is available wherever books are sold. Annie, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. This was great. Inside the Writer's Studio is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. 
and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. Inside the Writer's Studio is proud to be affiliated with Libro FM. Unlike other audiobook platforms, Libro FM supports your local independent bookstore. Whether you buy a single book or, like me, a monthly subscription, you can link your account to your local store or to Bookmarks to support literary community. For a special two-for-one offer, go to Libro.fm and use the discount code WRITERS. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer's Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review online at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside the Writer's Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. In our next episode, I'll be talking to Kyle Lukoff about his middle grade novel, Different Kinds of Fruit. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion.